Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am your host, Icarus Kane, and this is Aliens After Dark. I have a very special guest with me today. I have Agent Anderson from Alien Conspiracy Podcast, and I'm super excited to have you today. How are you doing, man? Uh, pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, if you want to kind of talk about your show real quick or kind of let us know uh, what, what it's at. Yeah, sure. Uh, my show is the Alien Conspiracy Podcast, and we do very similar uh, material as your show. Pretty similar. We've been around for a couple of years now, got um, probably about 140 episodes or something. So we've been uh, we've been around a little bit. And uh, yeah, we just talk about pretty much anything weird. Usually, you know, as the title says, mostly UFO type stuff and conspiracy type stuff. But we've done other things as well, like a, a couple of true crime cases and, you know, whatever. We'll do some cryptids on occasion. Uh, my favorite one of your episodes was the Britney Spears ones. <laughs> oh yeah, that was that was such a fun topic because I thought it was complete nonsense. The, my favorite yeah. topics are the one where I think there's it's complete bullshit when you start. You know? Oh, yeah. I, sh I should have asked. Do you is your show explicit? Uh, yeah, no, go go wild. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah there's no. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'll have to put on my filter, which is fine. I can do that. No, but. Yeah, I thought it was nonsense, but then I started looking at these Instagram posts, and I'm like, wow, that looks like there is something to it. Then I just started doing all this reading, went down the rabbit hole, and I'm like, wow, so yeah, this conservatorship thing is real, you know? It, yeah. It, yeah. I and, put off listening to that show, because I was like, oh, Britney Spears, what is this crap? But then it was like, I was like, what the fuck? Like, every two seconds, I was like, what the hell is happening here? Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. yeah, it's weird. And actually, yeah, Agent ETA, he was like, no, I'm not going to do that show. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, all right, fine, I'll just do it solo. I don't care. Yeah. But it was it was such a good topic that I had to do it. And there's there's actually a, what there's a show on I think it was on Netflix called Um Dirty Money, I think was mm -hmm. the name of the show. And they have a whole episode about conservatorships and elder abuse right. and that sort of thing. It's very unusual to see it used against somebody so young. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, they ended the conservatorship. And she has since come out and confirmed many of the things we suspected, mm -hmm. that she was being abused under the conservatorship. They were using it to basically take her money and, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah, it was a wild case. Really wild case. Yeah, that case. was insane. Uh, yeah, I just really didn't know any of that. And that was, that was, a, that one always sticks out to me. Like, I don't know why, but it was just like, I had no idea about any of it. And I think you did a great job. You did a good job on that. On oh, that yeah, show. thanks. It was it was really hard to organize that one because it, it got pretty convoluted at some point. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so I went on your show. Uh, I think it just came out this last week at the time of recording this, um, The Death of Hitler. And so I just wanted to say thank you um, for having me on. And I wanted to kind of apologize because I was super nervous. I don't know if you noticed. There was a couple times where you asked me uh, like a question about something or like, I, and I went back so far to answer your question that it was like I completely ignored your question. So <laughs> I was like so nervous, but like wanted to do such a good job for you. And uh, so I just wanted to say uh, thank you for having me on your show and kind of apologize for that. But yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. You didn't I thought you did an excellent job. You did a really good deep dive. Yeah, and you talked yeah, about a ton you. of stuff that I was, I mean, I did some research for the show, but you talked mm -hmm. about stuff that I was not aware of. Like you went, you went like real deep down the rabbit hole in that one. Yeah. So, it was yeah. like, we kind of talked on your episode. Like it was, I, there was points where I was like, this isn't even going to be an episode. And then it was just like, I realized like all of the, I didn't know any of this and it was really interesting to me. So I figured other people would probably think the same thing. Like, you know, something that they might probably don't know yet. And be super interesting for them so. so yeah i thought it went really well so thanks for coming on for that it's one that i've been wanting to do for a while it just there's i have a whole list of topics probably mm -hmm. hundreds of topics that just probably never get to them all you know yeah there's so much in in the realm of the weird yeah yeah uh so today we're going to be doing uh bent waters lake and heath and bent waters uh case from 1956 yeah so yeah i'll let you kind of take it away yeah, so I did this one on my show. It was just me and ETA. We did this one, I think it was our ninth episode. It was a long time ago. And it's one of my favorite cases. This is one of the cases that really, you know, turned me around. Back in the day, I was just like super skeptical. I didn't believe any of this nonsense. You know, seeing stuff like the the Rendlesham guys on coming on Unsolved Mysteries and making up all their nonsense they made up on that show. And mm -hmm. I, I see that stuff and I'm like, ah, this is all a bunch of BS. But when I read about this case... 
And then I started reading about like some of the academic papers that have been written on the radar data and that kind of stuff. I really started, it's like, hmm, this, there's actually something very strange going on here. I don't know what that is, but it's a case that really captured my imagination and kind of led me down this path of, you know, looking into more cases with good episode or good episodes, good evidence. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about here is the Lake and Heath Bentwaters case is generally how it's referred to. And those are two bases, two Air Force bases in England that witnessed these UFOs. But there's actually a lot of different bases in the area that witnessed the UFOs. And there's also an airport that probably did as well. But we're going to focus mostly on Lake and Heath Bentwaters because we have the best documentation for those. So this was uh, Bentwaters was a base that was run by the United States Air Force. And it was supposed to have had like nuclear bombers on the base. So that's probably why we were there running it. But Mm -hmm. it was sort of a joint effort. This whole thing was a joint effort between the United States and England. And that's so you'll see different witnesses from different branches during, you know, during the case. It was also detected uh, another base that was pretty foremost in the case was uh, Neatishead, N-E-A-T-I-S-H-E-A-D, Neatishead. I'm not sure how you would say that. But that was another one where you have some pretty prominent witnesses. The date this happened was August 13th to 14th in 1956. And it happened on a dry, clear night. And there was also, there was an interesting fact is the Perseid meteor showers were going on. And mm-hmm. a lot of the skeptics will say that the Perseid meteor showers were what people were seeing. They weren't actually seeing UFOs, but we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to look at, you know, the witness statements to, you know, make your own decision for that, I guess. And you can find this stuff online, but we'll talk about a lot of that stuff. So this uh, was one of the cases that was uh, um, analyzed by the Condon Committee. And the Condon Committee, if you're not familiar, was this committee that looked at a bunch of UFO cases with the intent of concluding that they're all a bunch of nonsense. Right. And this is one of the very few cases that they said was unusual And this is a quote from the researcher. He said, this is the most puzzling and unusual case in the radar visual files. The apparently rational, intelligent behavior of the UFO suggests a mechanical device of unknown origin as the most probable explanation of this sighting. The probability that at least one genuine UFO was involved appears to be fairly high. So coming from the Condon Committee, that's insane. Right. Like they... They yeah. downplayed everything. It doesn't matter what it was. They were like of the swamp gas variety. Oh, you saw a big giant ship? Swamp gas. You know, mm-hmm. that's pretty much how they explained away everything. So the fact that they said that there's something to it, I think is really surprising. That was one of the surprising things I found when I was researching this one. So at the time, there was also, a in general, in this area, there was a local flap going around. It's sort of a strange, I don't know why they call it a flap, but <laughs> so there was around this time, there were a bunch of people seeing UFOs all over the place. And this is just one incident of many. But the difference between this and other cases of of the time is we have really, really good evidence for this one. We have radar visual data. In other words, we have these things on radar and we have simultaneously witnesses seeing them as they're being viewed on radar, which is not always the case. So that helps us rule out like an error on the radar system. Because at this time, radar was still very, very new. So it's really easy to say that the radar was just malfunctioning. And that is a plausible explanation for some of the sightings, perhaps. But if you're seeing a physical thing while it's caught on radar, it's much more difficult to argue that it was a radar error. Right, right. So the first sighting in this particular event that may may or may not be related was at 1810. We're going to use military time here because it's more fun. We're talking about military Uh events. But if you want to convert to regular time, just subtract 12. So 1810 would be 610 in the evening. Yeah. (laughs) George Sandman and Peter Dell were flying in a Venom night fighter from RAF Water Beach in Cambridgeshire. They were on a practice mission with uh, they're doing ground controlled interception. So the radar at Nita Shed Norfolk was controlling them and saying, "Okay, we're doing the operation, do this, that or whatever. They saw something on the radar at um, and at thirty five thousand feet, they diverted them to identify a high altitude radar target. Dell, the Venom's radar operator, got the target on his scope, but it was well above the ceiling of the Venom. Now, he he saw it at eighty thousand feet and climbing. The, at the time, the radar wasn't that great at identifying altitude. 
So they, they weren't entirely sure where the target was. They just said, it's over there somewhere, go look for it. So they found it and they tried to go and find, they tried to climb and get to it, but it was well above the service ceiling of the Venom and they couldn't actually get close to it. So at, at, eventually they ran out of fuel and they went back to base at about 1920, so 720 in the evening. And the pilots, the, the crew, the air crew thought that it was probably like a balloon or something weird like that. So they didn't really take it that seriously. But the ground radar operators took it a little bit more seriously. Obviously, they wouldn't scramble a fighter to go look at a balloon. You know, it's very right. expensive to operate fighters. Mm -hmm. So later, the the witness statement of, of Dell, later he would say that half the Air Force was scrambled that night for the events that we're about to talk about. So they were taking this very seriously. Nobody on the ground, nobody in the Air Command, nobody thought this stuff was balloons. Otherwise, they wouldn't have scrambled half the Air Force to go look for these things. And it also, there, there's, if you look into like the witness statements, it's hard to say exactly how many planes were scrambled, scrambled and there are conflicting statements. Like one pilot will say, oh yeah, we were scrambled, but it's probably nobody else was scrambled. But then you have other pilots like this guy saying, yeah, they scrambled half the Air Force. So there's a little bit of conflict with the um, with these statements, and it's kind of hard to say who was scrambled from where and what they saw specifically. But we do have a few major events. Um, so here we have a quote here. It's, he said, an unusual object at Lake and Heath radar, which at first moved at a speed of between two and 4,000 knots and then remained stationary at a high altitude. No visual contact was made with this object by the venom sent to intercept it and other radars failed to pick it up. So this is a quote from a document that we're not sure it 100% is connected to the event I was just talking about with these two, with uh, Dell and, um, and Sandman, but it's probably talking about their, their event. And that's sort of how the documentation goes for this case is we have pretty good documentation, but some of the documents, we're not sure that it matches up to that particular sighting, right? So mm -hmm. the first incident that's usually referred to in this case happened at 2100 and the witnesses were at RAF Bentwaters. They saw a target that looked like a normal aircraft that was traveling over 4,000 miles an hour and approaching the airfield from east-southeast. It crossed the center of the scope and continued to the west-northwest on a heading towards RAF Lakenheath, which is about 40 miles away, and then it faded off of their scope. Now, I would just like to point out that 4,000 miles an hour, really fast. <laughs> right. And yeah. we have... so. The fastest thing we have, which was not flying at this time, is, well, now, I'm sure we have something faster now, but the fastest thing we know about is the SR-71, which goes a maximum of about, let's say, 2,000 miles an hour, just mm -hmm. for a nice round number. And that's that's was flying, I think, in the 60s, and it, it, it flew until like the late 90s. I think it was retired finally in 99, and it still holds the airspeed record today. That's how crazy this thing was. Wow. I love the SR-71, but yeah. <laughs> it, it couldn't even fly. They were seeing these things at a fairly low, low altitude, like under 10,000 feet. The SR-71 could not get to its maximum speed until it got all the way up to altitude, like really high, like 50, 60, 70,000 feet, where the atmosphere is very, very thin. Because right. when it traveled at 2,000 miles an hour, the skin heated up so much that like it expanded. It basically got like red hot. I mean, it didn't actually glow red probably, but it mm -hmm. got so hot that they had to design the aircraft specifically to accommodate for that. So when it was sitting on the ground, the rivets would have would be loose and it had a wet wing design. So it would just be dripping fuel on the... <laughs> they'd have to have pans <laughs> specifically for that. But I mean, that's maybe a little bit of a diversion. I'm kind of an aviation nerd. But anyways... <laughs> That's the fastest airplane we've ever made, and that only went 2,000 miles an hour. We maybe have something faster now, but even at that altitude, the SR-71 still couldn't go that fast because there would be too much friction. It would just melt. It, there's right. no way it could go 2,000 miles an hour at a low altitude. So to have something 4,000 miles an hour, we didn't have anything then, and we probably still don't have anything now that could go 4,000 miles an hour. So that's, that's one of the things that really grabbed my attention is like, wait a minute. 4,000 miles an hour? Could it be a missile? I guess, maybe. But when you look at some of the witness statements that we're about to talk about, I don't think it was a missile. I guess because, you know, you could argue that there are some rockets and missiles that can go that fast, but not really. I mean, I when I originally did this case, I looked pretty hard to find something that a terrestrial device that could account for mm -hmm. a 4,000 mile an hour speed. I couldn't find anything. 
I mean, I couldn't find anything that we have nowadays that could account for this behavior. Right. That's what got my attention too. Um, I remember I was doing some research in, about over World War Two, and like uh, the Germans had just created one of the fastest aircraft that they didn't really use very often, but that was only going like, I think its max was like, I want to say like somewhere around 800 miles an hour. And that's like nothing compared to what they were, they were picking up. So yeah, that, that totally grabbed my attention. Like, yeah, it's not a, it's not a rocket going straight up in the, you know, in the atmosphere. Right. And there, there is one statement that we have in a document that calculates it at over 12,000 miles an hour. But, um, a lot of people think that that's probably a typo (laughs) because there, that was the only place somebody found that most of the statements say. 4,000 to 4,500 miles an hour, but it's, it depends on how you calculate the numbers. Cause these are pretty primitive radars. And, mm-hmm. uh, most of them that we're looking at had a four second sweep. So it would pick up the blip every four seconds. So the sweep would come around again and the, the object would have moved several miles. And then they, you know, do some math and do some simple division and come up with mm-hmm. a very, very fast speed. But, okay. So the next target that they got was at about 2,100 hours. So about the same time as this fast target, they saw a group of slow-moving targets, which was tracked heading northeast. It was three targets in a triangle formation, followed by a cluster of more than a dozen targets. And an interceptor was scrambled to go look at it at about 2100, but it had a malfunction. It, some fuse or something malfunctioned, and the wingtips dropped off of the, of the thing and uh, landed in a field that they eventually re- they recovered them later. But the fuel t- tanks fell off, so they had to go back and land. The cluster slowly crossed over the base at speeds between 80 and 120 miles an hour. At about 2130, the ground control approach at Bentwater's GCA, they vectored a T-33 to go look for the targets. It it had to also return to the base. It didn't see anything, but the, the targets, they had them the whole time. Um, the radar didn't have a height finder, so they didn't know the altitude of these things. So the, they told the, the T-33, they told them to do the search at like a few thousand feet. Uh, they didn't see anything at that altitude. But I mean, if you're talking about if this if these targets were at like 50,000 feet, then they could have been flying all over the place and they wouldn't have seen them. They just they're two different altitudes. They're not going to meet each other at those at those you know heights. Right. Um, they did see both the air crew and the ground crew did see an amber colored light on the horizon. But a lot of people think that this was probably Mars. And Mars was at its closest that it had been in like 27 years or whatever. And it was the way it moved was how you would expect Mars to move. So they don't think that this was connected, but it was noted by the witnesses. So, you know, just throwing that out there because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of the case, but it probably was not the slow moving targets. But that's what some skeptics will say. Oh, yeah, it was just Mars. But it's like, well, <laughs> well, let's see. When the cluster yeah. got to 40 miles northeast of Bentwaters, the individual targets converged into a single target several times the size of a B-36. Now, the B-36 Convair Peacemaker is the largest mass-produced piston-engine aircraft ever built. It had a wingspan, the largest wingspan of any combat aircraft, at 230 feet, and it operated from 1949 to 1959. So just a couple of facts. Just to give you an idea, 230 feet, that's a big boy. That's a that's a chonky boy, as my one of my kids would say. <laughs> That's a huge aircraft. So the target was several times uh, several times larger than a B thirty six when it converged. So you have all these, you know, over a dozen targets all converge into a single blip, which is just. I mean, you've heard this in other other UFOs. If you've you know read about a lot of UFO stuff, you've heard yeah. this before. Multiple mm-hmm. targets all converging into one and sort of combining together and then moving away. So this large target stopped and remained motionless for about 10 minutes and then began moving towards the northeast again. And then after about five miles, it stopped again. It stayed for about five minutes and then it left the scope on a heading to the north at 2155. So 955. You're like, well, that's weird. That doesn't sound like Mars to me. <laughs> you know? Right. Never There's, seen Mars do that. You can get into the weeds with this one talking about like the different sorts of radars used and an analysis of, you know, why or why not it was like, you know, anomalous propagation and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't really, that, that stuff gets kind of dry and I don't really understand it anyway. So you kind of have to take somebody else's word for it. But the radar operators who were looking at this did not think that it was anomalous propagation. And they can tell the difference. You know, there's, mm-hmm. 
uh, a false return looks different than a real return to somebody who actually knows what they're looking at on the radar scope. So that was one of the really interesting, like to me, that's like the most interesting encounter because like what, what, what's happening there? You have all these birds don't do that. Airplanes don't do that. It's, it's very strange. Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, they had another fast moving, de- uh, fast moving target detected 30 miles east of Bent Waters. And it looked again like a normal aircraft and it was traveling once again over 4,000 miles an hour. And it just went over and left the scope to the west. Now, at this time, they were the fast targets. They weren't really taking them all that seriously because it's kind of unbelievable. If you're if you're like a radar operator, you know, these things don't exist on on this planet. We don't have anything that can move that fast. So they're kind of like, well, that's weird, but whatever, you know. So at 2255, there was another fast target. And once again, it was headed right towards the base and it passed over and went to the west. But this time we have a radar visual sighting, unlike the previous two, which were just on the radar. They saw it in the tower. They saw uh, the ground personnel. They saw a streak of light that corresponded to the radar return. And if something's moving 4,000 miles an hour, you're not going to see like an actual craft or something. It's going to zip overhead and it's going to be gone pretty quick. You're just going to see a streak of light. And that's what they saw. But the thing that makes this particular sighting really fascinating is they also had an air crew that was flying over the airfield at 4,000 feet, and they saw it go underneath of their aircraft. So we have this, this gives us a really good idea of the altitude. And this is very important because it allows us to completely rule out the idea that this could have been caused by the Perseid meteor showers, Mm -hmm. which is what a lot of the skeptics try to argue that these streaks could be meteors, which is theoretically possible because meteors can cause radar returns because they, they can like ionize the air or something. But the problem with meteors, with the Perseids, is a couple of problems. First of all, they only travel in one direction, right? They travel, and the, yeah, right. They don't travel the direction that the returns were coming. They were going from east to west, more or less, and that's not the direction the Perseids were coming from. And also, meteors tend to go like two hundred thousand miles an hour. They go really, really fast, and that's why they burn up so quick in the atmosphere. Also, I've never heard of a meteor going at below. 4,000 feet and then, you know, going for such a long distance without burning up, (laughs) you know, I I just don't think that's physically possible. Maybe I'm wrong. Ask an astronomer. I don't know. But even, I don't think I got the quote for this particular, for my notes, but even Alan Hynek was like, yeah, this probably isn't the Perseids. There's like a little, little memo he wrote saying it's not definitely not the Perseids, but because we have this pilot at 4,000 feet, that gives us really good evidence that it was definitely not the Perseids, so we can pretty much rule that out for this case. So that's a very, very important little piece of information there. So at this time, they started taking it a little bit more seriously because they're like, okay, we just saw this thing. It's definitely not a, uh, definitely not, you know, anomalous propagation or a radar error, right? Mm-hmm. So at this time, Bentwaters called RAF Lakenheath, and that's where everything was headed in that direction anyways. So they're like, hey, you guys seeing this stuff? So Sergeant Perkins, uh, he has a witness statement I'd like to read here because it's just the way he words things is very, very interesting. And there's also sort of uh, an inconsistency here. But anyways, Skullthorpe GCA unit calling and the radar operator asked me if we had any targets on our scopes traveling at 4,000 miles an hour. They said they had watched a target on their scopes proceed from a point 30 or 40 miles east of Skullthorpe to a point 40 miles west of Skullthorpe. The target passed directly over Skullthorpe RAF Station, England, also USAF Station. He said the tower reported seeing it go by, and it just appeared to be a blurry light. A C-47 flying over the base at 5,000 feet altitude also reported seeing it as a blurred light that passed under his aircraft. No report as to the actual distance below the aircraft. I immediately had all controllers start scanning the radar scopes. Interestingly enough, it's possible that there was a separate incident at Skullthorpe, right? Because some witnesses say that Bentwaters called, um, they called Lakenheath. And there is documentary evidence that that happened and that Lakenheath saw these things as well. But here we have a witness saying that we were at Skullthorpe and we saw them too. (laughs) So that's, when you look at the witness statements, it sort of gets kind of convoluted as to what happened when and where. But we do have a lot of similarities. So we see here we have, the airplane flying at 5,000 feet instead of 4,000 feet. 
But as far as ruling out the meteors, it doesn't really matter that much. It still has, you know, it's still going under the airplane. But we have the discrepancy of Skullthorpe versus Lakenheath or Bentwaters. It's like, that's kind of weird. But this witness was actually interviewed many years later. So it's possible that he got the name of the airbase wrong. Um, and at this time, we have a whole bunch of like a whole cluster of different airbases and radar stations in the same area. And they're all coordinating with each other. So I think that's why the witness statements get kind of messy because one person will say, oh, no, no, you know, Lakenheath was handling that. No, no, that wasn't Lakenheath. That was Bentwaters was handling that because they're a little right. confused about who was handling the target at any particular time. And to compound the complexity, you also have you also have the, you know, the USAF and the RAF who are coordinating. So it gets pretty convoluted as to who was doing what at which time. But I think a lot of those discrepancies can simply be explained by. There was just a lot of stuff going on, and it was just a really complex chain of command, you know? Yeah, it gets confusing when you have multiple departments and, and different organizations kind of trying to deal with the same thing. Yeah. But which, whichever the case, at Lake and Heath, they started watching their scopes, and they saw a stationary target. It began moving at a high speed in a rectilinear pattern of abrupt starts and stops, now, again, we have ground observers seeing this thing. So a lot of skeptics will say, yeah, but because the radar had like a four second sweep or whatever, this might be just different targets, different errors on the radar that are just appearing at different times that are looking like a radar target, but it's not really. It's just, you know, but when you have the ground observers who are seeing this thing zipping around the sky, you can pretty much rule that out. You can rule out that it's like some sort of anomalous propagation or some sort of sort of radar error. Because we have that that coinciding observation. If we didn't right. have the ground witnesses, it would be much easier to say this was just a radar error. And radar errors do happen. I'm not saying that they don't. Right. But in this case, because we have those witnesses, it makes it far less likely. I mean, how can you account for that, you know? So they sent up a radar, or radar, they sent up an RAF Venomous interceptor once again. It approached the target while it was stationary. They didn't know the altitude, but they thought it was above 1,500 and below 20,000 feet, mostly because of the way the radars worked. That was pretty much their operating window that, you know, they could expect it to be. As the interceptor approached, and when the object was about half a mile away, the pilot told Control, Roger Lakenheath, I've got my guns locked on him. Then there was a pause, and he said, where did he go? Do you still have him? The ground control responded, Roger, do you have anything following you? And then he said, Roger, do you have anything following me? Roger, it appeared he got behind you and he's still there. So they saw the target circle around behind the interceptor. And when it did so, they saw two distinct returns. And the uh, the interceptor, obviously the pilot's like, well, this is no good. So he tries to shake the thing. Mm -hmm. He tried going up, going down, doing barrel rolls, whatever he could think of to try to shake the UFO. But it stayed glued on his aft the whole time glued the same distance no matter what maneuver he tried. And at the time, these Venom interceptors were were pretty good. It's There might have been something better, but it's unlikely that anything, even today, would be able to stay perfectly glued to the back of it, you know? That's yeah, a little Yeah, I was strange. reading, it said he was trying to do... I, so the way it put it, what I read, it said he was trying to do um, violent maneuvers to to shake the uh, the tail or whatever... Yeah, I call it. But yeah, that's pretty descriptive. Like you're trying to get rid of this thing and you're kind of starting to panic a little bit. Right. Because in a in a wartime setting like this, was, we weren't at war specifically, but this was, as they say, the height of the Cold War. You know, they mm -hmm. always say that <laughs> if, if it was during the Cold War, it was the height of the Cold War. But right. if you had some sort of unidentified target, which you would probably assume was an enemy aircraft of some kind, if that thing circles around you and gets behind you that is a, that is a highly aggressive maneuver right that you would interpret as basically similar to somebody punching you in the face on the street it's like okay it's go time we are now in a fight mm -hmm. this is no longer checking it out we are now fighting basically right it takes a, so, yeah. a position on on you that you now have to defend right so what uh what i found is that he tried to shake it for about 10 minutes and during which time the pilot became increasingly worried. I mean, he's probably crapping his pants up there because... Yeah, I would be. This thing has has his number. It could blow him out of the sky at any time that he wants. Just imagine the stress involved 
<laughs> you know, I mean, these, these pilots got to have ice water for, you know, for blood or what ice water in their veins yeah. or however you want to say it. Cause I can't even imagine, you know, I'd that's, be losing it. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. That had to be a very stressful situation. So it kept following him, but eventually he ran low on fuel and he had to head back to base. And when he did so, the target followed the, the airplane for a little bit, but then it stopped and became stationary again. We have a witness that actually, um, after the fact, you know, was a, gave a, a statement. This was uh, Ken Young. He was a National Service soldier, and he saw something around midnight, which is a, around the same time they think coincides with this. Uh, we're not sure exactly, but they think it coincides with this particular event. But he said, I remember what I saw as long as I live, or I will remember. It was just there. We did not see it land, but it was quite big, round, and very, very bright. It floated up to about over 100 feet or so, then it came down to ground level. Then it would float around to and fro. It lighted up the ground and trees around it. He saw this for about an hour, and he said it was a bluish-white oval shape. When I went off duty at 1 a.m., it was still there. So that's a, a sighting that was at, at that night that may or may not coincide with this tail chase event. But either way, um, this tail chase event is is pretty crazy. We've seen stuff like this in some other UFO cases where it seems like the UFO is kind of playing with, with the airplane and it, you got to wonder, like, is it trying to figure out what the capabilities are? Is it just on a joy ride, just kind of, oh, let's go freak these monkeys out and, you know, have right. some fun at their expense kind of a thing. Like what's going on here? I don't know, but that's one of the more sensational accounts, you know, that, that chase, but, uh, there, so there was, but that chase, it wasn't just that account. There were a lot of other witnesses who saw that thing chasing it around, you know, ground witnesses who saw the light moving around. And that's important again, because it rules out the possibility of an anomalous radar return of some kind. Right. So many witnesses said that a senior officer from the air ministry interviewed witnesses, took reports and then told them not to discuss it. So again, we have this very common theme of somebody like a senior officer coming in taking all the data and reports and saying, all right, this didn't happen. You know, we've seen mm -hmm. this over and over again, many times. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's just, just a little weird, you know, it's men in black like trope stuff. Now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, if, if there's nothing to it, then why would they say that? Why would they cover it up? I don't know. It's just right. weird. Why would maybe it they a just, big deal? yeah, maybe they just cover everything up just, just because that's just what they do. I don't know. Yeah, like so we do have a weird oh, yeah, security measure measure. Yeah. Right. So we do have a civilian witness that saw a report in a newspaper and wrote an art, wrote a letter in response to the newspaper article. And this was many years after the fact in 1978 is when the newspaper article came out. Um, but this, the, this is something you're not going to really forget, you know, if you saw something like this, this witness's name was John H. Killock of Eli Cambridgeshire. And he wrote, um, I was a witness with others who wished to remain anonymous to the Lake and Heath flap of 1956. I have never seen such a panic. From the Prick Willow Road, Eli, we could see searchlights sweeping the sky in every direction. We saw a bright white star-like light speeding low across the fen straight towards us. When the light reached us, it stopped dead. It did not slow down. It just stopped. The light went out then a bright flash of light and it shot off on the exact same course from which it came as if on a slack string. Later that same night, I was in New Barnes Avenue and I saw searchlights sweeping the sky from the direction of Lake and Heath and also Mildenhall, I think. When I looked to my right and I was amazed to see the glow of three amber objects hovering over the road at a height of 50 to 70 feet, some 30 yards to my right. The object seemed to generate its own cloud, enfolding on itself, completely silent and rock steady. After some minutes, the sound of a metallic click and whine of the UFO began to rotate in a clockwise direction, but after only a few feet it stopped and returned to its original position. Again the metallic click and whine, but this time the rotation was very fast, and for a few seconds the objects seemed to swap places in what appeared to be a figure of eight before returning to spinning in the shape of a ring. The object began ascending until it was out of sight. 
I think it was one object and not three, but I cannot be sure as I could not see beyond the cloud that the object formed. So that's, that's like, what, <laughs> you know, yeah. what in the heck? That is just such a strange description. And he even drew, if you want to look up this guy's testimony, he even drew like a, a picture, an image to describe how the three orbs were, were like swapping out with each other and like this figure eight type pattern, like they were, you know, sort of circling around each other or something. And he also said that he saw a venom sort of chasing around the area looking for the light. But I mean, wh what is that? That's not ball lightning. That's not a helicopter, you know? Yeah. That's really yeah. weird. A meteor doesn't do that. No, definitely Mars not a meteor. doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, who knows? It's, it is possible that he saw this story and he tried to tell a tall tale, which is always a possibility. So you can't, I can never just take this stuff at face value. But on the other hand, he was there and he saw something strange and it does match what other people saw to an extent, you know? But there's, that reminds me of um, one case that was, it was considered the original cattle mutilation case that was like in the late 1800s or something. But I forget, I forget the details. I'm sorry, but some, some researcher really dug through and figured out that actually this guy who reported this originally was part of a liar's club. And they had a contest to see who could get the biggest tall tale in the newspapers, basically. <laughs> so That's they hilarious. made up this bizarre you know, cattle abduction case and then got it published in the newspapers. And for years, people assumed it was the first, but no, it turns out it was just, so the point is, is that people make up stuff all the time for various reasons. So mm -hmm. you can never take anything at face value, but still, uh, this, this does seem like a credible witness and it is a very, very interesting piece of testimony. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So like I said, there were many, many similar incidents happening around this time. I mean, this was like a, an, it was not just these isolated events, but this was like a genuine flap. And if you want to look at some of the witness statements or some of the military documents or whatever, you can see a whole lot of sightings, even on this night, beyond what I've just talked about that are very similar, um, that could be just different documents describing what we've just talked about. It could be additional things that we haven't talked about. Um, there, I mean, there are sightings from like, two in the morning from four in the morning, you know, all night long and in the previous weeks or months. And in the following weeks or months that it just, it just kind of, there's just an overwhelming amount of information available that you can look into with this one. It, it just depends on how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole, but it's hard for me to say, like, I, I don't believe the skeptical explanations that usually is that it's basically meteors. Because mm -hmm. most people have seen meteors, but why in this one specific case would these people see these meteors and then they'd be like, oh my God, we got to scramble these airplanes and look at these meteors, you know? Right, right. It and just, on a night where they know that there's a meteor shower, like you would yeah. first rule that out before you wasted the jet fuel on it. Right. It just doesn't, that explanation doesn't make any sense to me. And if you look at a lot of the times the skeptics will... Uh, there's a difference between being skeptical and looking at the explanation and saying, okay, whatever. But there's a difference between people like Philip class and his explanation was like, he'll do this thing where, so for the airplane crew that saw the, the object go below them, he reinterprets that. And he says, okay, what they actually meant was that they saw a meteor on the horizon and it looked like it was below their wingtip. And that's what they meant when they said it went below the airplane. I'm like, no, they, but that's not what they said. So right. he's adding, he's adding words to their witness statement. He's, yeah, he's assuming what they're, yeah, he's yeah. creating information that wasn't there and reinterpreting it. He's force fitting meteors onto the witness statement when that's not what they said. They said that we saw it go under our plane at the same time that the people on the ground saw it go over their heads, you know? He knows meteors can't do that. So that's why he makes up this stuff. But that's a lot of the skeptics. Like they have to have a negative answer. So they'll bend over backwards to achieve that negative answer. You know, whether, whether or not the data fits it, they'll force fit the data and they'll cherry pick data to sort of make that happen. But if you look at what we have in front of us, we have a strange case with really good evidence, you know, right. really good evidence, really bizarre case. And it's unexplainable. Like for this one, we don't know that it was aliens. 
you can't say that because we don't have that evidence. But mm. on the other hand, we have witnesses describing a craft that apparently ignored the laws of inertia. We don't have a craft that could do that then. We still don't today. So where does that leave us? What was this? Is ball lightning? I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I have no yeah. idea what this thing was, but it's a fascinating case that really captures my imagination. And that's why I wanted to do this one. Uh, I just love this case. It's just a, such a good case. Yeah. Yeah. This one's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, let's take a break real quick and uh, then we'll jump back in and kind of talk about some of our theories along this case and uh, wrap it up. All right. Welcome back to Aliens After Dark. Today we have Agent Anderson from Alien Conspiracy Podcast, and we're talking about Bent Waters. I'll uh, probably wrap this up with a kind of discussion on what we think happened and what we think the theories are, and, and or what the theories are, and what we think you know is most likely or most probable. So. so um, Agent Anderson, you you think this is this is aliens? You think it's UFO? Well, I think it's, it's weird. <laughs> I think it's definitely weird. Yeah. If you look at, I mean, if you look at the technology we have available to us, I think it's really hard to explain it as a terrestrial vehicle. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will say, well, yeah, but you know, how can you explain the way this thing moved? It it was probably you know the witnesses were all mistaken, or you know it was who knows. But we do have some theories that sort of give us a clue. So, for example, in the 90s, there was a physicist named, I forget his first name, but his last name was Alcubierre. And he came up with this oh, yeah. idea of the Alcubierre drive. Mm -hmm. And instead of using like a rocket ship or something, you would bend space-time around the craft. And this is something that works within our current understanding of the universe. So it doesn't break any laws that we know about. It actually would work Theoretically, the problem is, is in order for it to actually work, you would need something like uh, exotic matter that we haven't actually found in nature yet. Mm -hmm. So we don't know how to actually make it work, but theoretically it should work. So it's sort of you have like, you know, a negative space in front of you and positive space behind you. Like you're bending space time, you're moving space time around the craft instead of moving the craft through the atmosphere, right? And this, this could explain how something like a craft could start and stop on a dime. Mm. Because even a physical craft from an advanced species, if it had a normal propulsion system like what we're used to with, you know, air surface controls like wings and stuff like that, if it stopped on a dime like this, it would shred that thing. It would, it would right. absolutely obliterate anything, any sort of airplane, just because of like inertia and wind resistance right. and that kind of stuff. You yeah, wouldn't it still be has able to deal with physics. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to accelerate from a dead stop to anything really, let alone like mm -hmm. thousands of miles an hour. That it just wouldn't happen. But if you were bending space time around the craft, then you wouldn't have you wouldn't have to worry about things like gravity or air resistance or inertia, right? Because mm -hmm. you're you're sort of cheating your way around that sort of stuff. So I wonder in this case, what if now we don't have any ev evidence for this. But sometimes it's fun to say, what if, what if this is some sort of like alien probe or obviously a group of probes that was sent to come and just sort of check stuff out. And we have, remember, we have nuclear weapons at the Bent Waters base, and there are a great many number of UFO sightings around UF, a uh, uh, great many number of UFO sightings around nuclear bases. And if you think about it, like, if you're an alien species, you would be worried about nuclear weapons and how we were able to deploy those, you know? Because, like, think of it this way. Yeah. If you were to take an F-22 back a thousand years, you could conquer the world, assuming you could keep refueling it. Like, what are they going to yeah. shoot arrows at it? I mean, whatever. Right. Like, there's nothing anybody could do to defeat you. But as soon as you landed that plane on the ground, somebody with a stick could destroy it, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so... It's, I think it's the same thing. Like, no matter how technologically advanced they are, if we got a nuclear weapon to their planet, 
we could do some damage, you know? Right. If we got a nuclear weapon to their mothership in orbit, assuming there is one, we could do some damage. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think you have so many of these UFOs around nuclear bases is that they're just sort of checking it out. They're testing our capabilities to see, all right, could they actually deploy these things and get us with them maybe? Or maybe they're just keeping an eye on us to see, okay, once they figure out how to get out of their own solar system, maybe we got to do something about that because <laughs> we right. don't want these guys coming here. Because if you were an outsider observing us during the last century, you know, you probably wouldn't want to make friends with us. You know, think yeah, of you're taking all, note of our, of our World history. World War I, World War II, <laughs> Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, mm-hmm. it's, we're, we're pretty savage, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's kind of what I think about this one. I, I wonder, you know, is it some something like that? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, like if I'm observing like a group of, of chimpanzees and they're fiddling around trying to figure out fire, but then all of a sudden I come back in 50 years and they've got like, you know, spears and torches and they've created some kind of like bomb or something like I'm you're going to take note of that and 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 keep an eye on it further um I think the Alcubierre what is it Alcubierre drive I think that's a a great explanation um because it's like I imagine like riding space time like a wave like you are like putting yourself in this bubble I guess of like of the wave of space time and you're able to control it like you said, negative in front of you and positive behind you, and it kind of pushes you. And that way you don't have to deal with the same physics that we worry about when we're, you know, in, in planes and jets and stuff and, like, stopping on a dime and, and speeding up to 4,000 miles an hour instantly. Like, that's a good explanation for it. I've heard um, it's uh, one thing, what was it? Um, I heard that it's, like, remnants of us from the future looking back in the past so like i thought of it like maybe we can't really time travel to the past like physically be there but maybe we can like almost like a television like you can turn on a point in the past and view or observe it and kind of control how you're observing you know some something that previously happened you can't physically be there but maybe you appear as like a light or or something like that and I don't know where I read that, but uh, I thought that was really interesting. Like you're a remnant of a future observation that's discovered some type of time travel or some type of like, you know, um, means of observing the past without actually being able to physically be there. Because uh, a lot of times they show up or they um, are observed as just like beams of light or balls of light. And there's not really any good explanation to really, I mean, nothing really explains it. I think it's really uh, revealing that that Condon report, that was like the one thing that stood out to them that was like everything else they said it's either, you know, swamp gas this or weather balloon that. But this one was like, well, this is an actual UFO. It's something that we don't, we, we can't identify and, you know, they like you said they said it was possibly like propagations on the on the um on the radar it could be bullshit but also we don't we can't rule that out and you know we don't know that that's specifically the case for this one so i thought that was really revealing yeah one one thing you just reminded me of is that there so the one of those the the guy who said he saw the spheres sort of interchanging with each other and moving in a figure eight pattern there was a similar witness statement that I found from the uh, Michigan swamp gas case, actually. That, that was a decade later in 1966, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, if we see so many of these spheres, right? We see a lot of UFOs are reported as basically some kind of sphere. Yeah. Now, if you think about it, like, we don't know for sure where, where all this dark matter is, right? But it's possible that there's a fourth spatial dimension that we're not really aware of because we can't experience it. If you think about like a two-dimensional plane, if you had like a shadow of something on a two-dimensional plane that was a sphere, it would just be a circle. Or right. if you poked through that plane with like a pencil, you would just see a circle. You wouldn't see the cylinder of the pencil. Mm-hmm. So if you saw, if there was an object that existed in four dimensions, 
we would only see a sphere. We wouldn't see whatever other dimensions are going on there because that's all we can do in our dimensions would just be like some kind of sphere. There's mm-hmm. a whole other craft there. We just can't see it. We can only see this. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe I'm like kind of a dumb, I'm kind of, I don't understand all this stuff completely, <laughs> you yeah. know, Yeah. but um, <laughs> I did see this really cool video with Carl Sagan explaining like multiple dimensions and stuff. And mm-hmm. that was pretty cool. But like, it, it's hard to, you know, conceive of a fourth dimension and it, it might not actually be a thing, but if it was, if we had these ships that were existing in an extra, extra spatial dimension and like one, one time I heard a number that like, if you include all the dark matter and stuff, like 90% of the matter in the universe is unaccounted for. Like we don't, we only know where 10% of the stuff is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I heard, yeah. yeah 4% or something was like all that we've discovered or every element and everything in the universe yeah. is only like 4% of what we know. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is kind of crazy. So is it like, if you're, you know, if you're pooping on the toilet, does that mean that, like there's like a whole wall missing there and there's like these fourth dimensional creatures who are just like laughing at you? You're like, ah, mm-hmm. look at him, you know? <laughs> yeah. know. Um, I'm not that paranoid, I swear. No, but really, but yeah. <laughs> it just kind of makes you wonder, like, where is all this missing matter? Is that mm-hmm. a fourth spatial dimension? And that could explain some of these things. I don't know. But I also like that the theory you were talking about, which it could be us from the future. That's also, I mean, there's a lot of people who are proponents of that as well, because like we have figured out how to manipulate time. That's a thing. That's a real, we did a whole episode on it. It's um, we can travel forward in time, but we haven't right. figured out how to travel backwards in time yet. We have theories on how to do it, but we haven't been able to actually do it, mm-hmm. but it does appear to be theoretically possible. So like you're saying, maybe a person can't necessarily do that, but we could send something back and maybe that's what we're seeing. Yeah. But that's, that's what I really like about these cases is it's a real mystery. So we just have to, you know, we can speculate, but that's all we can do. But it's so much mm-hmm. fun to speculate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's the whole reason I, I wanted to do this podcast was because things like ancient aliens are and those theories are so much fun to, to talk about and to think about. Like, are we being visited by aliens? Are we being visited by our future, you know, uh, descendants? viewing us from you know observing us from the from the future into the past you know what are these these things have you have you ever seen anything that any type of balls of light or anything i haven't seen a ball of light i have seen a couple of ufos that i'm not convinced that they were they're not like as exciting as this case Mm -hmm. but for example um there was what was it like last year or the year before there was that comet neowise i don't know if you remember that yeah Yeah, but it was a pretty big deal. It's not that often that you can see a comet. So Mm -hmm. I took my family, we were driving all over the place, trying to get a good view of it because where we are, it was very low on the horizon and there's a lot of, a lot of hills and stuff. So we have ended up going all the way over to the beach to try to find, try to find it. And my family's like, can we go home yet? I'm like, no, we're going to, we're going to see this damn comet. (laughs) Like, all right, fine. So we pulled over and we're looking for it. And we did, we never actually saw it because it was too far down on the horizon and there was a layer of fog. Mm-hmm. unfortunately that was covering it. So, you know, but while we're at the beach, I was just looking up at the stars and I saw what appeared to be like a satellite, you know, like a iridium flare or whatever. Yeah. But like, I've seen many satellites. In fact, I just, I really love looking for satellites. It just, it just fascinates me that like, dude, we're basically not that far advanced from monkeys throwing poop at each other. Yeah. And yet we put crap up there in space. It just, mm. it just blows my mind. But so I saw it, but usually I'll see a satellite and it'll travel in a straight line and it will not go horizon to horizon because you have to see it when it's reflecting the sunlight. So it'll usually, it'll fade in if you see it fade in and then it'll fade out as you watch it, as the angle changes and you no longer are able to see the sunlight reflected in your direction from the solar mm-hmm. flares or whatever it is, right? right? So usually you'll see it just kind of go through part of the sky and then it'll disappear and that's it. You could actually, by the way, if you, there's, I think there's an app called, um, heavens above, I think it's mm-hmm. a website too. And it'll tell you where all these objects are. It'll tell you the schedule of like when the international space station is above you and you can watch oh, that. That's stuff. cool. Really, really cool stuff. But anyways, this one, it didn't fade in. I didn't see it from the horizon, but I saw it pretty close to the horizon coming from out from the ocean, the Pacific ocean. And it went overhead and then it went all the way to the far horizon, right? Other than that, it looked like a satellite, but it was also moving in a small sine wave pattern. And it was, I'd say the frequency was probably about three hertz. So about three, it'd go through like three sine waves a second. So a fairly fast, Yeah. you know, I've never seen a satellite do that before. And right. I had a, 
I had another witness with me that I won't name because they probably want to remain anonymous, but um, they also saw it and they said that they saw it moving in this fashion as well. But it's, it's like, I've never seen a satellite do that before, but the weird, really weird thing is when it was overhead, it passed overhead a little bit and then we saw it stop. It just stopped for maybe one second or one and a half seconds and then it continued moving. And I'm like, huh, that's huh. weird. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen a satellite do that either. And I wonder if it was some sort of like atmospheric layer that caused, because you can have atmospheric layers that can cause like a magnification effect mm -hmm. that might have make made it look like it stopped moving. Um, I so th that's one of the UFOs. It's it's very weird. Yeah. I've never seen a satellite do that before, but it could very well be some kind of satellite. It's possible the satellite could have a sine wave type movement to its orbit like that. I suppose. And it's possible that it could have passed over some sort of atmospheric anomaly that could make it look like it's stationary, even though it's not. So it's completely explainable, but it was still pretty weird at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So hard I've, to kind of yeah. describe exactly what it was doing. Yeah. So I've had a couple of sightings like that. Like, again, not, none of them, none of them, I would say, are on the level of like the 1956 sighting. None of them, I would say, are definitely like an alien craft, but some of them are pretty weird. Um, I'd say the most interesting one I had was in Fullerton, California in the mid nineties. Sometime we, we used to, when we were in high school, we used to always go down there and hang out in the downtown area. It's kind of a fun place to kind of chill. And, uh, we saw what looked like a flying saucer in the distance, like this huge, like oval shaped glowing thing. And it turns out later, I'd never seen a blimp at night before, <laughs> but <laughs> a self lighted blimp at nighttime, like the Goodyear blimp. Uh -huh. It looks fucking weird, man. Like at yeah. nighttime, like, but the interesting thing was not necessarily what we saw, but it was how people reacted to it. So me and my friends, we went outside, we looked at, we saw it and we're like, uh, fuck this. We're going back inside. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't want anything to do with this nonsense. None of us said that. We all just kind of looked at it and we're kind of like, uh, let's go back in and get some coffee or something, you know, like right. <laughs> we're all just kind of like, okay, we're just going to pretend that wasn't there. We're going to ignore it. <laughs> And then there were a lot of people out and about and you could see people, some people were pointing at it. A lot of people were like, they would see it and then they would kind of like turn around and walk the other direction and kind of try to ignore it and stuff. And like, it was really interesting to see how people reacted to this thing, yeah. you know? And like at the time, I didn't find out until years later when I actually saw a picture of a blimp at night. Cause I'd, I've seen blimps all the time in Southern California. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they fly around for like, you know, like baseball games and stuff. There's stadiums everywhere. Right. So you see them all the time, but you don't see them at night that often. So I'd never seen one at night before and it looked weird, but the the craft itself was not the interesting. The interesting thing was how people reacted to it. And it's like, dude, probably thousands of people saw this and thought it was some kind of flying saucer and nobody reported it. Like nobody talked about <laughs> it the next day. Like none of my friends ever mentioned it again. You know, like yeah. we all, we're all just like, okay, that was weird. Let's just forget about it. Let's pretend that didn't happen. You know, yeah. like, and nobody wants, vault. yeah, it's just, so it was a really interesting experience just to see how people reacted to it. You know, it's really weird how our relationship is with things that we don't understand like that. Like how humanity is just kind of like, uh, I'm going to, if I say anything about this or try to describe what I've seen. I'm going to be ridiculed. So I'm just going to pretend like I didn't see this or yeah. forget that I saw this. And, and uh, it's weird. Or if it, if it's something that like your brain doesn't expect to be there, just like when, you know, you have a cloud and your brain interprets it to look like a face. If there's something that's not supposed to be there, your brain tries to reject it, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that can explain certain, certain cases, like a lot of cases, for example, the Phoenix lights, a lot of the witnesses say, that they saw it and then they forgot about it until they saw it on the news later. And I yeah. think it's like this thing where your brain is like, okay, that's not supposed to be there. So we're just going to mm. go ahead and filter it out, you know? Right. Yeah. And then your brain just filters it out. And I think that happens to, sense. yeah. And some people will think that like for the Phoenix lights, for example, that there was some sort of something making people in like this hypnosis or something. I don't know. But I wonder if it's not like hypnosis, if it's just your brain is just like, nope, <laughs> you know, it is. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. It doesn't. It, nope. Not, I'm not going to listen to it. It doesn't exist. I'm going to pretend it's not there kind of a thing, yeah. you know? Does not compute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So how about you? Have you had any UFO sightings yourself? Um, not, nothing that really stands out that like, I 
I can go back to and be like, this was definitely weird. Uh, I know I've seen things that were weird, but um, I will say, so I used to live in uh, Missouri a while ago, uh, like, shoot, like 10 years ago. Um, and outside of this town called Joplin, Missouri, they have this thing called the spook light. And, um, it's, it has more of like a, like a paranormal, I guess, understanding or connotation or whatever. Um, but basically you drive out to this, you know, BFE, like middle of nowhere and you go down this like dirt road and like, it's like, it's like a well-known thing in this town. Like you can, you know, go on Friday nights, people would go out to this spook light. And so you go out to this area, this like random road and a bunch of people will park their cars and stuff and you kind of just wait. So I went out there one time and I, I was actually a, a, a youth leader at a church. So I t had taken like a couple of the like youth group, a couple of the kids with me and I let them, you know, there was a bunch of people from the church there. So they all got out and were kind of doing their thing. And I just laid down in the back of my truck and I had, I had seen it before, like it, it kind of appears down at the end of the road and you can kind of like walk towards it and um, it, it slowly like disappears or it'll like go off in a direction and then you kind of lose it and then you turn around and it's like behind you somehow back in the direction that you came from. But on this occasion, I was laying down in the back of the truck, um, it's by myself and I was just kind of watching the stars and this fucking like like ball of light probably the size of like i don't know maybe a little bit smaller than a basketball um floats directly over the my my viewing area like it floats right over the back of the truck and it i have no explanation for it it was like below the trees uh i have no idea you know like and i just kind of laid there and was just like what the fuck like i was trying to figure it out i was trying to think like how can somebody that's also here be fucking with me and making this happen? And, <laughs> you know, like I was trying to trying to make sense of it. Um, and I only saw it like it, it flew over the truck. I didn't see it again. And uh, when they all kind of got back from the end of the road, they walked down and came back. And I asked them if they saw anything. And nobody said they saw anything in my direction. I can't really remember what they specifically had seen there, you know down that way but I remember like thinking like have you did you guys see anything over here like by me and nobody said that they really saw anything so I just kind of you know didn't really make a big deal out of it but I always will remember that that was like incredibly weird and like I said it, it tends to uh in this town it has more of like a theme of like a paranormal like um like a ghost or something like that, like a spirit, um, is what it tends to kind of get labeled as, but that was definitely a ball of light. And as I grew up and, you know, started learning more about UFOs and different, like, that's a lot of the ways that they, they will appear or be seen or be observed. And so I thought that I always thought that that was like really interesting. Like this thing flew like maybe like five to 10 feet above me and just directly over the car. It didn't stop or anything, but I didn't take my eyes off of it and I could definitely like not explain it. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, that sounds like a legit sighting to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, orb sightings are incredibly common and mm -hmm. it's fun to speculate. That's a, that's a whole other episode right there is, yeah, yeah. Orbs. but I mean, it's fun to speculate. What is it? Is it some sort of unknown phenomenon? Is it like mm -hmm. a UFO, like an alien probe or, I mean, there's all sorts of things like, yeah, that's really weird. I've never, and that was so close up too. I've never seen anything yeah. like that. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I am a lot of loss of words a lot of times in trying to describe it because it was literally what people say. It's just a orb of light or a ball of light that doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere, but is like right in front of you or like, you know, however far away from you, it's, you can see it and you're trying to like make sense of what it actually is, but you're just end up being at a loss for words like yeah <laughs> it's like who are you gonna who are you gonna even tell that about you're gonna tell your friends you're like i saw this orb and they're gonna be like all right whatever dude <laughs> right right <laughs> like we we're saying earlier 
you know, if you see something and you tell somebody, they'll be like, okay, weirdo. But it's like, no, dude, I'm mm-hmm. not the weirdo. That shit I saw is the weirdo. Like, right. Don't, <laughs> yeah. I'm, not the, I'm not the one who's weird here, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm just telling yeah. you what I observed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm the honest one here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't blame me, you know? Blame yeah. the messenger. I like the, um, I like the theories about, like, um, the fourth dimension type stuff or, like, you know the time travel type stuff or, or I think aliens are definitely like possible, you know, I think we could be getting visited and we're just so low on the, the food chain that we can't under like technology wise that we can't understand really, or even describe what they're capable of doing. So I think, I think, I don't know, it's just a matter of time till we evolve more and and (laughs) may not be in our lifetime but hopefully someday we'll be on the level of like you know maybe i don't know i mean like you you hear these things like when you like go fishing and like uh you you catch a fish and throw it back and it's like what does that fish experience like does he think that he's just been abducted and then (laughs) thrown back like his experience (laughs) are we are we the fish in this scenario that is he go tell all his other friends and they immediately label him a, a crackpot, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, fu- it's a funny example, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, um, we should probably wrap it up there, man. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Agent yeah. Anderson. Thanks uh, for having you, me on. You want to plug anything real quick? or? Uh, yeah, if you want to check out my show, it's Alien Conspiracy Podcast. You should be able to find it on any podcatcher. Um, Twitter at AlienConPod, and um, yeah, come check us out. We do very similar material, so it's uh, if you like this, you'll probably like that. If you like that, you'll probably like this kind of a thing, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, To all my listeners, definitely check out his Britney Spears episodes. Uh, I think it was was it one big episode or a two parter? I think that was just one parter, but I think it was a long one. Okay, yeah, yeah. that, That one I think I recorded like three hours and then edited it down to like an hour and a half or something. Like, yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah. Anybody listening, definitely check that out. Even if it doesn't sound interesting, because I was not expecting it to be that amazing, and it, it was a really good one. But all your all your episodes are great, so I def- definitely want to say that to the listeners. But um, oh, thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, um, but yeah. Well, again, thanks for coming on. Um, to all our listeners, if you have any questions or comments, uh, you can get a hold of us. Our email address is aliensafterdark, the number nine, at gmail dot com. Uh, we definitely love to hear from you and, and you know, um, hear any questions or comments that you may have for us. And, uh, yeah, keep looking up because it's always dark somewhere. And we'll see you next time. Bye.